Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are in the series, The Gospel According to Moses, Genesis. And we're in Lesson 63, and our focus, as we continue on, almost verse by verse, is Genesis 25, verses 29, through chapter 26, verse 7. Now, we're going to be talking about a famous event. You'll remember it. Esau comes back probably for some hunting trip. And he smells the delicious red stew that Jacob is cooking. And you remember that Esau, because he wanted to have that delicious red stew, he gives up his birthright. He gives up the future blessing that he's going to get as the firstborn. So in order to understand the full impact of this, you guys, we need to study a literary structure that's called a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary structure. It's found in the Bible. It's found in literature. Except God inspires his writers of his word. Not only Moses in the Torah. But David in the Psalms, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, they all use this, inspired by God. You need to know this. You need to know what a chiasm is to get the deeper understanding. Now, I strongly recommend some links that I have actually provided at the website. So if you go to the website and you find the picture for Lesson 63 in Genesis. And you'll notice it because I have an, kind of a Middle Eastern looking guy in old, ancient type of Middle Eastern clothes. He's on the right side. There's a tent in the middle. And it looks like Esau's in the back by the tent coming in from a hunting trip. Anyway, find that. And after the picture, you're going to find an introduction to the session, and in there will be links. Links to articles and websites about chiastic structures, and a link to my video called The Mirror of Passover. Now, this is important. That link for that video is there, along with the links to the articles and so on. However, to get at the specific place in the video where I start teaching on chiastic structures, it's at 28 minutes, 5 seconds. That's where to go in the video. You don't have to watch the whole video, but go to 28 minutes, 5 seconds. So let's go. Come with me. Come with me to the area probably near Hebron. This is probably where the tent of Isaac and his wife Rebecca is, his son Jacob is probably near the tents or the family tents, and he's cooking up that delicious stew. Can you smell it? Come on, let's go. Let's go see the awesome chiastic structure that plays such an important role in this event of Esau selling his birthright. It takes us deeper into his word. So you ready? Come, let's go.
Torah does something unbelievable to actually make the point that Esau is just a rebel, awful. What I want to do is I want to go into the key verses. And I'm in Genesis 25, verse 29 through 34 in Genesis 25, reading from the Fox translation. Once Yaakov was boiling boiled stew. When Esau came in from the field, he was weary. By the way, just want to let you know, he was weary. He was not hungry. He was tired. Esau said to Yaakov, pray, give me a gulp of that red stuff, that red stuff. I am so weary. You know what he's saying? I'm so tired, I don't even want to go to the kitchen to make my own supper. That's what he's saying. It's not that he's famished, not that he's hungry. He's weary, and he doesn't even want to lift his finger, you know, to do anything. Therefore, they called his name Edom Red One. Yaakov said, sell me your firstborn right here, here and now. In other words, send me the birthright. Esau said, here, here, I am on my way to dying. So what good is it me to a first, uh, to, as a firstborn right or the birthright? Yaakov said, swear to me here and now. He swore to him and sold his firstborn right to Yaakov. Yaakov gave Esau bread and boiled lentils. He ate and drank and arose and went off. Thus did Esau despise his firstborn right or his birthright. And then, as I'm checking commentary, I go into John Kareem, a Christian commentator, a Hebrew expert, no Jewish commentator, none, did what Kareem did because Kareem saw it. Actually, there was a Jewish commentator that saw this. Excuse me, there was. When we actually take a look at this, this is what he says. Now, to some of you, if you remember previous classes, you're going to say, this is, this is awesome. John Kareem says that in these verses, we get a primary point about Esau's character and his relationship to the Beit Av. Because the literary structure that's used here is a chiasm. What's a chiasm again? Quickly. I want you to think of a pyramid. Okay? So you have a pyramid, and the pyramid is, you're reading some verses. Let's say you're reading, you're reading seven verses. Okay? You're reading along, and all of a sudden you come to verse 1, and you start climbing the pyramid. Then verse 2, you're just reading. Okay? Come to verse 3, and then at the top of the pyramid is verse 4. You, you don't know this yet. Okay? You're just reading. Then you've got to start going down. And you read verse 5, then 6, and then 7. So you finished your seven passages, and all of a sudden you say, oh my goodness, verse 1 is related to verse 7. One, the first and the last are related. The second and the second to the last are related. The third is related to the, let's see, four, five, sixth, and then you finally got the fifth one on top. A literary device is a chiasm. I wrote this down. A chiasm is a literary device that's used in the Bible and it's used all over, okay? It's done on purpose to bring out the central point of the event or the issue being discussed. There's a central point here. It is used to show the main focus of the writer. In this case, it's God's view. What's going on? So here's a good example. 
John Kennedy. He said, ask not what you can do for your country, but what you can, no, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So there's four statements there, okay? Think about the pyramid. You got A, number one, number two, number three, and number four. There's no middle one, but there actually is, okay? You have number one, and number two, and number three, and four. Two and three are related. Listen to this. Ask not what your country, ask not what your country, okay? That's the first statement. The last statement is, to do for your country. So you have these two phrases about the country. But the middle two are, what you can do, but what you can't. What your country can do for you, but what you can. The central focus is on you. What are you going to do? Don't worry about what your country can do for you. What are you going to do? It's all about you. That's the focus. Here's another one. This is from Matthew 6.24. Statement one, no one can serve two masters. Statement two, for either he will hate the one, statement three, and love the other, statement four, or be devoted to one, statement five, and despise the other, Statement six, you can't serve God and money. So you got the pyramid. You actually have a chiasm here. Statement one was no one can serve two masters. Statement six was you cannot serve God and money. You see, there's two. You got the two, the two, the two. The state, second statement is for either he will hate the one, but the fifth statement was and despise the other. So you got these two statements that one is hate and despise, but they're, they're similar. But what are the middle two statements? Because this is uh, an even number. Love the other and be devoted to one. The concept is about love. And what is Jesus mentioning? What's the point? You cannot love in such a way that you can love money over God. You cannot love them equally. This is what he's saying. Very fascinating in terms of the chiasm. Now, what's the chiasm here? What's the main point? So let me do this for you. It's really verses 30 to 34. Verse 30. Esau said to Yaakov, Pray, give me a gulp of the red stuff and that red stuff so I'm so weary. Therefore, they called his name Edom Red One. So that's verse 30. What's verse 34? Verse 34 says, Yaakov gave Esau bread and boiled lentils, and he ate and drank and arose and went off. So both of those verses are related to the stew. The second verse says, Yaakov said, sell me your firstborn right here and now. That's the second. The second to the last is, Yaakov said, swear to me here and now, he swore to him and sold his birthright to Yaakov. So we now have the selling of the birthright in the second and the uh, fifth verse. But what's the middle verse? This is the central point. Here I am on my way to dying, so what good to me is a firstborn right? That's the point. If he could care less about his birthright, he could care less about his father, his mother, the Beit Av. Remember what I re read from you from 
Ray Vanderland's commentary on Israel's mission in the ancient Near East. The Beit Av and the firstborn son, are it's huge. So in that chiastic stru structure, and just a comment that I wanted to make, that birthright means he gets a double portion. That birthright means he's got a status for the future. He's going to be the leader of the family. That birthright means his money that he's going to get, he's got to support the family. He's got to care for them when they have need. Now, later on in that verse, and I believe it's in verse 34, yeah, it says he despised his birthright. In the Hebrew, I have mentioned, to the, I've mentioned this over and over and over again. Many times in the Hebrew, Hebrew does not have a definition. Hebrew words do not have definitions. They have conceptual meaning. So what's the conceptual meaning of the Hebrew word that has been translated despise? It's a picture. Trample under your feet. So what's the picture? What, what is the Hebrew trying to tell you? Okay, despise? Are you kidding? He thought it so worthless that he could just take it and throw it in the mud and trample it, and it was worthless to him. Esau's tired, he's weary. Jacob did a meal. Esau's too tired to feed himself. Now, the birthright? Forget about it. He could care less. He wants his food. He's got no concern for the future and the family. Now, remember, as we go back to this, Isaac preferred Esau because of good meat, tasty meat. Rebekah preferred Jacob. He's a man who has integrity, a whole man. And implied in the Hebrew that Jacob actually took care of the herds and the flocks of his dad. So Rebekah, what does she see? She remembers what Yahweh told her about the younger serving the older. And she knows Esau cannot take over and he cannot be the Bikor. He's the ruin of the family. And in the chiasm, this is the key. The chiasm is, and we see he's only concerned with the me and now. He doesn't care about the future. He has no concern about the family. And like I said, he disdained his birthright. He's a man of the field. Suggest he was not even home. Not assisting his dad as was expected, as we've already seen. Later on, we won't read that verse around, he marries two pagan girls. And he brings Sarah, Sarah to Rebekah and Isaac. Now you can actually read it there. Why didn't he go to his dad? And here's the other thing. You need to understand the culture of the ancient Near East. Who arranges marriages in the Middle East? Esau didn't wait for his dad. He went off and married them. He's a rebel. You can see his disdain against his father and everything. Let me give you another aspect of Esau. Genesis 27, verse 36. A very important verse in this whole saga. Here's the situation. Okay, Remember... Rebekah disguised Jacob, right? And Jacob is disguised as Esau, comes in and gets the blessing. Now this is, gets very interesting, just as an aside. Uh, there's a, a, a great deal of, um, it's not debate as it is uh, wondering. Uh, there's the Bekorah, the firstborn, okay? There's the birthright, the Bekorah, 
And then there's the baraka, the blessing. So you got the firstborn, you got the birthright, and then you got the blessing. They're all separate. And we have no ancient Near East history to give us the connection. So there's guesses. The guess is, in order to get the bekorah, the birthright, the father needs to bless you, and he needs to bless the firstborn. And they're actually three separate things. That's just a little aside. I, I found that interesting. But now Jacob gets the birthright and leaves, and Esau comes in. All right, so Esau's here. Listen to what he says. Esau says, Oh, is that why his name is called Jacob, the heel sneak? And, okay, the heel catcher. For he has now sneaked against me twice. My firstborn right he took. Let me repeat that. My birthright, my firstborn right he took. And now he has taken my blessing. Liar. Liar. Esau lied to his dad just like Jacob. Both of them lied. How can I prove that? The reason being is... Let's see if I can find it real. Yeah, here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, when you go into the ancient Near East and you're studying good scholarship, you find out this. In the Nuzi laws from Mesopotamia, this is northern, this basically is in the Assyrian culture, dating to the mid-second millennium BC, it demonstrates that birthrights were transferable. There's one case is mentioned in this ancient literature from 5,000 years ago that there was a man who sold his birthright for a sheep. They can be transferred. So, Jacob stole nothing. Jacob did not trick Esau. He basically says, hey, give me your birthright. We'll, we'll trade it for the stew. Esau says, great, that's all it's worth to me is a bowl of stew. That's a fair trade, no lie. No tricks, nothing. That's a fair trade. Only for the simple reason that nobody that I know of has ever come to me to say in the ancient Near East, birthrights are transferable. We need to pay attention to the history. We, gotta go, we need the expanded picture. Remember what he talked about in terms of that expanded picture. Jacob did not deceive Esau. No tricks, nothing shady. Simple trade allowed by ancient Near Eastern law. Esau is a liar. This is fascinating. Now, just as an aside, what I want to do is this. With the Orthodox commentary, the Chumash, they give some interesting perspectives on this situation. And what I want to do is this. I, I want to share with you that these are godly men uh, trying to share their ideas in terms of what's going on. And they're adding words into the Torah. The problem is this, you guys. There are so many Christians that only rely on the Chumash. And that's why for me, it's like from now on, if somebody comes to me and I'm in a church and they're doing something and all of a sudden I'm hearing a lesson, they say, well, Strong's Concordance says the meaning of the word is this, okay, I cringe. So now I've got to be in churches and say, well, what the rabbis say from the Chumash is, I'm going to fall underneath a chair. 
Okay, But I wanted to let you know, many Christians who are in Messianic congregations, those that celebrate the Sabbaths on Saturday, this is all they rely on. So let me give you a perspective from this that's being used in Christian churches today about this story. And you tell me whether it's true or not. Let's take a look. The sale of the birthright. Jacob's intense desire to purchase the birthright. Stop. Where does the Torah say he's got an intense desire for the birthright? Where? Nowhere. That's a rabbinical opinion. Now, I bless this rabbi because if he would have said, if he would have said, Jacob seemingly, possibly had an intense desire, maybe influenced by his mom for the birthright. I get that. I would say that's an interesting statement. It could be possible. Okay? I think, to me, and I'm trying to bless these guys, I think that's what he's trying to say. So I'm trying to give this guy the benefit of the doubt. But it doesn't say there was an intense desire. Because it's understandable in view of the circumstances in which Jacob was cooking the lentil stew. The sages teach, the rabbis teach, that Abraham died that day. Huh? <laughs> Abraham died that day. So what was going on, Jacob was preparing the traditional mourner's stew for his dad. Traditional mourner's stew? Where does that come from? I haven't even read that in the Bible. On that very day, and on that very day, Esau's sinfulness became public knowledge. This made the birthright even more precious to Jacob because the spiritual mission of Abraham's family was brought to mind and because Esau's unsuitability for it becomes so blatantly obvious. The Midrash teaches that since the sacrificial service was performed by the firstborn in those days, Jacob said, shall this wicked man stand and bring the offerings? Therefore he strove mighty to obtain the birthright. So it's an interesting perspective. And I think what rabbis are doing, okay, they're just trying to make sense out of all of this and maybe even connect some things. I can't teach this. I can't teach this. And so the Chumash, I still reference it. I really do. These are men of God. And I still don't fully understand why they do this. I, I don't, I'm not Jewish. I'm not Orthodox Jewish. I, I, I respect them, but I, I'm, I respectfully disagree. Okay. So, when we take a look at it, then this entire situation in Genesis 27 of Rebecca telling Jacob to uh, disguise himself and so on, Rebecca and Jacob, they're in this together. They're in this deception together. And Rebecca is acting on her own, and Jacob obeys, and he goes along with it. He's obeying his mother. Honor your father and your mother. Okay? Now, here's another thing. And this is a possibility. And this is where I think rabbis do that. I just wish they would couch their language. So what I'm about to say to you, I can't say as fact, but is this possible? Esau never told Isaac about the soup incident. Isaac didn't say anything to Esau and said, I know you sold your birthright, but let me give you the blessing anyway. Go out and 
get me some game, and then I will give you the... He didn't say that. The Torah does, is very silent on this, which means Esau, after he sold his birthright, never told his dad. In other words, he held it back. That's deception. And then he lies to his dad and saying, Jacob stole it. No, he didn't. Because now we understand the ancient Near East in terms of real history and archaeology from the Nuzi text that birthrights could be transferred. So is it the fact that Rebecca knows this? See, here it is. Is it the fact that Rebecca knows this? And is, is this possible? That she said, I know what we're going to do. Since Esau is deceiving the father, we're going to deceive Esau. Trick the trickster. Because Esau was tricking his dad. Is that? I don't know. That, do you see the problems in this family? You know, Isaac is a hero. He's a patriarch. Yes, he is. He's a normal man and he's a bad father. And Rebecca, I'm sorry, she loved Jacob and seemingly showed it. She's not a good mother. This place was being torn apart. Now, this whole situation br brings me to an issue. In our lives, are there white lies that are acceptable to God and not considered a sin? As opposed to black lies that are truly lies and are evil. Is there a difference? So in Lesson 63, quite definitely, we can say, oh man, are we dealing with a dysfunctional family? Rebecca takes matters into her own hands, doesn't wait for God. She tells Jacob to lie. Jacob lies to his dad, lies, by obeying his mother. <sighs> Rebecca and Isaac, the Torah seems very clear that Rebecca preferred Jacob, Isaac prefers Esau. Seemingly, the boys knew this? Possibly? If they did show it, that they did prefer one boy or another, you talk about extremely poor parenting. We see lots of issues. But you know what's really interesting? Torah is very down-to-earth. It's dealing with real people, real issues, real weaknesses. <laughs> Just like us. We can relate to Isaac. We can relate to Rebecca. How many Bible studies have I been in or how many classes that I've taught when we got to this situation or situation similar and you asked the question, would we be any different than Rebecca? She's, she hasn't heard from the Lord seemingly since the boys were in her womb. So she takes matter into her own hands. Ugh. They're not super saints. They're not superheroes. God uses amazing, ordinary men and women with faults and issues that we can relate to in his redemption plan. These are regular people. And Israel, in Isaiah 42.6, and Israel in 49.6, they're to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth. And guess what Jesus that says to 120 disciples the day he ascends to the Father? Go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus is God's salvation. That's his name, Yeshua, salvation. Ordinary people, not superheroes. 
Now, in Lesson 64, we're going to study a concept, the concept of lying. And once again, I'm, I'm indebted to Dennis Prager and his commentary called the Rational Bible Genesis. And in Dennis's commentary, he talks about the fact that the command not to lie is inherently in the Ten Commandments. And it's really well done. When we get to the Ten Commandments, we'll be talking about that. This is also true of Dr. John Kareed, an amazing Christian scholar, Christian theologian, Christian Egyptologist and archaeologist who he himself wrote a commentary on the Torah, and he agrees. But here's the question. Are there lies that God does not consider sin? You know, we might say, are they white lies? This is a very interesting concept. And we're going to be studying that in Lesson 64. Are there lies that are not sin? Are there lies that are sin? Are there? Is there a difference? It's very interesting. So I'll see you in Lesson 64. Shalom.